the common thread that I've learned through doing coming out stories is the simple message that it does get better. And, you know, I've spoken to people whose parents have reacted terribly when they've come out to them. But then fast forward a few months or a few years and everything is absolutely fine. And my story reflects that as well. Meet Emma Goswell. Emma's a broadcaster, podcaster and author who champions the stories of LGBTQ plus people. Her podcast and book, Coming Out Stories, shines a light on the experiences of hundreds of people of all ages and backgrounds from all around the world. Emma co-hosted the groundbreaking Gadio Breakfast Show in Manchester when the station first went national. She also won a Sony Award for her work for the Prison Radio Association and you can hear her on Virgin Radio Pride this summer with her show, The Weekend Outing. During lockdown, she gave up her work to care for her sister, who was dying of breast cancer. You'll hear us talk about Abigail later on. This Pride Month, I wanted to know how have attitudes changed since Emma first wrote in her teenage diary that she thought she loved a girl at school to now? And what was it really like advising Channel 4 on the first lesbian kiss on TV? You'll find out. We recorded our chat remotely on the hottest day of the year so far, so I was in my shed with the doors open. You'll hear the bird song in the background. Emma had been up half the night looking after baby Neve, but that didn't stop her sharing some fantastic stories. Welcome to We Built This City, Emma. Thank you for joining me. Well, thank you for inviting me. I've just looked at the long list of luminaries that you've already had on the podcast and I feel very humbled. So first of all, you're an adopted monk. So tell me about your story and your journey into Manchester because it's quite an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah, and do you know what, Lisa? You got me thinking. I was literally sat on my sofa this morning and I calculated how long I've been in Manchester and I had to do some maths. I was like, 1996, right. That means I would have been 25. And it just dawned on me this morning... I have spent more than half my life in Manchester because I'm 51 now. And it still feel, I still feel like a new Mancunian and I've <laughs> suddenly realised it's 26 years, I'm 51 now. So, yeah, I came here in 1996 and I came from Liverpool. So, yeah, I got myself a degree in Media and Cultural Studies for John Moores University. Then I'd worked for a year as Publications Officer, so I uh, ran the Student Union magazine. And then even that and a degree from John Moores meant that it, it really didn't lead me onto any work in Liverpool. There wasn't much work in Liverpool in the early 1990s for people with media degrees. So I thought, well, do you know what? I'm going to have to move to that London, aren't I? I'm going to have to blimmin suck it up and go because all the jobs that were advertised were in London. And then I just had a second think and thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to, instead, I'm going to move to this other brilliant, amazing, huge, multicultural city with lots more job opportunities literally hop skip and a jump down the m62 from where i already live i'm going to move to manchester and at that point i didn't really know anyone in manchester i mean i had at university got the lgbt well in fact it was called the lesbian and gay society got the lesbian and gay society minibus over many a time to come to manchester's gay village and to go to the hacienda so i did know manchester a little bit really just to go for a good night out but i didn't have any friends there i didn't know anyone that lived here but i just thought that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to move to Manchester and see what happens. So we literally packed up, my girlfriend and I, wanted to live in Rush Home, and we, in fact, we had a flat, 
And then the landlady rang us the day before we're moving, I think, and left a message on her answer machine going, oh, sorry, they've decided they want to stay another year and you can't move in. We're like, great. So literally, by total fluke, we're to ring the estate agent, ring this bunch of landlords and go, help, we're moving tomorrow, we've got nowhere to live. And they're like, oh, you can have this place. And it was in a, a little two-bedroom flat above a curry house in Chalton. Chalton, Wally Range border, I believe. I mean, they call it, yeah, they call it Chalton border. It might have been more Wally Range. Um, but that's where I moved to, and I didn't really know the area. I didn't know anything about Manchester. I had spoken to someone from Manchester who lived in Liverpool who said, all right, so if you're moving to Manchester, the main rule is don't live in the north, live in the south, it's nicer. Which I think is slightly derogatory to anyone that lives north of Ardwick, but um, that's what I was told in 1996. I'm sure it's changed a lot since then, and in fact, I am about to move to North Manchester. Uh, but that's what I was told in 96, so I ended up, I ended up in Chalton, and of course, bloody loved it. Mm, yeah. Loads of people come to Manchester and go straight to Rushome. I moved to Rushome after I'd been to university in Birmingham. I loved it. And it was such a great place. And also, a lot of people I've spoken to on the podcast who are adopted Manx literally just rocked up here and without knowing people. And um, like Joanne Roney, for example, our CEO of the City Council, she didn't know anybody here. But it's surprising how fast that network of people, how fast you do make friends here. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing about Rushome is that I was really drawn to Rushome because I actually grew up in the Middle East. And so having that really multicultural vibe and having all those sari shops and mm. all the, uh, you know, Asian sweet food shops, it actually just really reminded me of my childhood. And I thought, this is a brilliant place. Mm. You know, I'd love to live in Russia and be surrounded by all of this vibrancy. So my mum grew up in Bahrain. That's really interesting. Oh, do you know what? There's so many Bahrain connections. Mm. I've just, I've spoken to so many people on podcasts who've just gone, oh yeah, who was it I spoke to? Someone that had won the X Factor. And then they suddenly went, oh, and I went to um, the Bahrain school. And I was like, so did I. Yeah. But, but literally 20 years apart. Yeah. Well, my, my granddad was the first engineer from the UK to go out, and they lived in Levenshulme. And my, my granddad got a job out in one of the American camps for an oil refinery and went off on a ship. And they didn't see him for two years. They didn't even know where Bahrain was. And so then my mum went out and her oh. and her sister, they lived out there with, the, with them until they were 14, came back to boarding, well, came back to school in Levensier. We had loads, they used to send us loads of stuff when my grandparents stayed out there. And they used to send trunks of stuff from the souks. And it was, yeah, so they always smelled of mothballs when they got back home, it was that exciting. And they rocked up in Salford. <laughs> Used to love going to the souks. And I'll tell you a funny connection that I was thinking about this morning, actually, about going to the souks in Bahrain. And I used to, because I was a teenager, um, the second time, I think we lived there two or three times. But the last time I lived there, I was like sort of 16, 17. And we used to go to the souks to go to the tape shop. So do you remember when you used to say buy audio on tapes mm, yeah. back in the day? Yeah. So this would have been sort of mid 80s, really. And, I mean, they would have all been pirate. I've, I apologise yeah. to all the artists concerned, <laughs> but, you know, it was my only access to the music world. Like, we'd listen to Radio Bahrain and then we'd go down the souk and we'd buy illegal tapes. And I bought this little tape called Strange Ways, Here We Come. And I absolutely loved it. And I fell in love with the Smiths. And it wasn't until about 15 years later that I clocked that Strange Ways was a place rather than just, ooh. Oh. going to be a bit strange we're going to strange ways Got so you. yeah i had absolutely no idea it was a place or a prison because wow. i was just you know a 
very sheltered teenager living in the Middle yeah. East. Yeah. Oh, and then you rocked up here, so that's a, a good uh, circle yeah. in the square, as you say. When you were at Liverpool University, is that when you were advised on the first ever lesbian kiss on TV for the book side? <laughs> <laughs> was it there? I was trying to look at your timeline. <laughs> She's done a research. Gosh, that's going back, isn't it? I remember yeah. that. I remember yeah. that happening. It was just so, you know, wasn't it? It was such a, a revelation. Everyone talked about that at the time. The first lesbian kiss. Yes, absolutely. Because funnily enough, they'd had a lesbian in Emmerdale previous. Zoe, she was called the vet. But she never got up to anything. She didn't do much, to be honest. She just sort of <laughs> identified as being lesbian, but she didn't get much action in the, in the Dales. <laughs> Um, but then, but then Brookside decided it's time we got a lesbian on. Let's do a lesbian. And I think this was before they had sort of. Oh no, EastEnders had done gay male characters, hadn't they, in the eighties? But there still weren't that many gay people in soaps mm. at the time. It, it was quite a big thing, really. I mean, now the ten a penny you can't you can't walk down the cobbles in Coronation Street without tripping over a gay, can you? But, um, at the time, it was quite a rarity. So they decided, the head honchos at Brookside, they were going to write a lesbian into the script. And it was a fascinating process. So what they did was they were like, oh, we're going to write this character in. We need to find some, a real lesbian to advise us and talk through about, you know, whether the script is accurate or whether it's sensitive enough or how we write the script. So what they did was they contacted the student union and they contacted the women's officer, probably thinking she was one, but she wasn't. <laughs> but, she, <laughs> but she did know one, so she knew me. Um, so she said, Emma, I've had this really strange phone call from Brookside. They want, you know, to speak to a lesbian um, so they can get help with the scripts. Will you go along and meet them? I was like, yes, I will. <laughs> get me to Mersey TV now, please. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so I went along. And it was the most bizarre meeting ever. It was me at a very, very, very long table, a bit like the sort of type that Putin uses, you know, and it's <laughs> like... And the script writers were at one end and I was at the other end, like, oh, keep the lesbian at a distance. <laughs> Do you, know, do you know what's going to happen? Um, and they quizzed me all about my life and my coming out story and how I realised I was gay and how I went about being gay and all of this sort wow. of stuff. But then they asked me really difficult questions like, OK, so how do we show her questioning her sexuality before she's actually done anything about it? Because, of course, being gay, you know, before you're outwardly walking down the street holding hands with the same-sex partner or having a boyfriend or girlfriend... It's all internalised, but how do you show that when you're not actually doing anything? So I, was like, I don't know, maybe, maybe she could be reading Oranges Are Not the Only Friends, <laughs> which, which was my reference point at the time, or, or a copy of the Pink Paper. Or so. so I was having to advise them with ideas as well as, like, you know, how gay people felt and what they'd gone through and all of this sort of stuff as well. Um, and I think they took some of it on board. I won't say that it was the world's best portrayal of a, of a lesbian, um, but the good thing that came out of that was, I said to them at the time, and I must have been more canny as a business person in those days than I am now, I said, right, right. what she'll have to do is, yes, fair enough, she's going to read Oranges and Not the Only Fruit, or, or she's going to, like, get the pink paper, or because they didn't even have Diva or any of these other magazines at the time, but the pink paper was around. Um, after she's done that, she's then going to look at the back pages of the pink paper and want to go and meet her tribe. She's going to want to go to gay bars and you're going to have to go to gay bars and you're going to have to do this properly. So you're going to have to have all extras who are actually lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, whatever, and I can provide you with that. And they agreed. So then oh. I became a casting agent for Mercy TV <laughs> and I was the most popular person in Liverpool because basically all of my mates got what, and I think we got, wait for it, 
£50 a day plus food. Food. Plus food. <laughs> and yeah. £50 went... £50 in 1993 in Liverpool went a long way. <laughs> so everybody wanted to be my friend and get... And, and we had some really fun days out just shooting in these, like, weird, like, what would have been, like, um, working men's social clubs, but they turned it into a gay club for the night. And all Amazing. these gays would just rock up, who were basically all my mates. And my friend Steve snogged his boyfriend Gareth in the background of one scene. And so he was probably one of the other first yeah. gay kisses on TV, but it was sort of forgotten or ignored because it wasn't really in the storyline he was just snogging in the background so yeah so that was fun so yeah I did I did that yeah and so then I also read that you started your love of interviewing people by interviewing yourself as Margaret Thatcher in your bedroom when you were about eight years old so what was that about I, don't, I feel like you've got too Why? much information about me Lisa I feel like I feel like you know more about my life than I do what's going on you know what's funny? Like, if you speak to anyone that works in radio, pretty much every single person pretended to be a radio DJ and have their own um, show, and they would record themselves on, you know, what we had access to, which was a little tiny portable tape machine with, you know, you could press stop, play, fast forward, rewind, and record. So you could record yourself on your little um, tape machine. And as soon as I discovered this, I was away because I love talking from a young age. I was like, oh, my God, we are going to have our own radio show. A lot of it, I was just on my own. So I was like, well, what else do I need on my radio show? I'm going to have to have interviews. I've got the music. I've got the adverts. I need to do an interview. So I interviewed Margaret Thatcher. Of course, she wasn't there. She was not available at the time. (laughs) Such an interesting choice. (laughs) Oh, my God, it makes me feel awful. But but I was a child, you know, child of that era. It would have been about 1979, 1980, 1981. I don't know. It would have been about nine or ten, basically. And, you know, as a child, she was the only prime minister that I ha- had living memory of. She was around for blooming ages, wasn't she? And that was the only person I knew. And I was like, obviously, clearly, I wanted to be a serious broadcast journalist. And at the age of nine or ten, I thought, well, I know what I'll do. I'll interview the prime minister. I don't think it was a very in-depth interview, and I'd love to find it. What insights did you gain? (laughs) (laughs) Have you still got the recording? (laughs) I've I've got something somewhere, but I do remember putting on a very posh voice and talking like this because I was Margaret Thatcher. Dear me. Can I just add, I'm not a Tory, and I do not love Margaret Thatcher, and I don't know why I did it, (laughs) but I was a child at the time, and that's my excuse. <laughs> if I'd really got to interview her as an adult, the interview might have been very different. I might have brought up a few things like milk snatching and clause 28 and poll tax. But anyway. Yeah. Oh. So, what did you do then to get into broadcasting? Because you, did you start the BBC? Yeah, so I hadn't really particularly thought about radio. I'd done a degree in media studies and I love photography. I worked as a photographer for years, I'd done the promotional copywriting. And I think really what I'd always wanted to do in my life was be a documentary filmmaker or. or Ultimately, I wanted to be Kate Ady. I wanted to make documentaries and I wanted to report the news. This is what I wanted to do. Kate Ady was my reference point. You know, she was a woman at the top of her game as I was growing up and as I was university. She was one of the first women that the BBC sent to war zones. And I just thought she was incredible. I just worshipped the ground she walked on. I just thought, that's what I want to do with my life. I want to get sent to Iraq and Afghanistan and report on these things. I mean, the closest I've come is Salford, but, you know. <laughs> that. Not that sounded times. terrible. That sounded terrible. It was the day after the riots, so that, 
that was the reference point there. But apart from that, I've not been anywhere dangerous. But no, I just thought, I, this is what I want to do with my life. And it took me a long time to get into radio and applied for hundreds and hundreds of jobs. And it was the most demoralising, awful, soul-destroying experience ever. And I always say, in a way, I wish I'd kept my rejection letters, but I couldn't bring myself to. But if I had, I could have wallpapered my flat with them because nobody wanted to know me. I, occasionally I'd get an interview and I'd get absolutely nowhere. Um, so it was a really long, long process to get in my first paid gig on radio, which was D106.3, which is the radio station that had only just started then in Chester. And I got employed to do the weekend bulletin. So I used to have to do a 6 a.m. bulletin on a Saturday and a Sunday, which I always thought nobody listened to, <laughs> apart from some farmers, maybe. Um, so I'd have to get up at 3 in the morning oh. to drive to Chester to get there for 5. It was, mm. yeah, I cried some mornings. I was like, I've killed my social, social life. life. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I'd be at a party and I'd go, I've got to go to bed at 8 p.m. I can't be at the party. Uh, but yeah, it was a great experience. And when did you do Manhunt? Because I vaguely remember Manhunt. When you, yeah, that was a bit of you. So not um, Kate Adie, but Annika Rice kind of yeah. <laughs> manifestation. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was brilliant. So that was, fast forward quite a few years, worked in commercial radio for a while. Then eventually, after a lot of hard wrangling, I did get a job at the BBC, which is what I'd wanted all my life, basically. Mm. I just like held it up as such a huge thing and managed to get a contract job at BBC and worked at Radio Manchester reading news bulletins. Then I became a producer. And then eventually I ended up becoming a presenter, sort of almost by accident, really. I think I annoy people a lot when I say I never really wanted to be a radio presenter. It wasn't something I thought I was capable of. It wasn't something I particularly had as a dream. But I got involved with a station called Gadio as they were setting it up. And it, actually it was the guy that set Gadio up, a guy called Toby Whitehouse. And he said, he asked me to present the breakfast show after the first trial run. And I was flabbergasted and shocked and horrified and had a massive, massive moment of insecurity going, this is a joke, right? I can't present, co-present a breakfast show. I can't do it. And several people convinced me at least I should try. So I thought, why not? I'll probably regret it if I don't. Tried it and the rest is history. Um, so then eventually at the BBC, I was allowed to do some presenting because of the experience that I'd had at Gadio, actually. I don't think they'd initially thought, oh, we'll get her on as a presenter. But it was, it was a long journey to becoming a presenter. Mm. Um, and Manhunt was one of the highlights, I think, because it was such an unusual programme. Um, and it was a very simple premise. So it was, we had two hours, 11 till one on a Saturday, and we had three cryptic clues, which were all written by my friend Julia, who made them all rhyme as well. And each clue would direct us to somewhere very specific in Greater Manchester. And the audience, we'd read out the clue and the audience would have to decide and send us there. So we'd have to sort of agree with, with ourselves, like, do we agree with Sheila in Hyde or do we agree with um, Pamela in Withenshaw? You know, should we be going to this venue or that venue? And some of the funniest moments were where we went to completely the wrong place. <laughs> And if, you know, what should have happened is that I'd rock up and, I, and it would be live on air and I'd literally run out the radio car, be driving around Manchester. I'd run out the radio car and I'd go, hi, you're live on Radio Manchester. You know, have you got the next clue? Because we'd need three clues to get to our final destination. Are you expecting us? And they'd be like, who are you? What's going on? One of, one of my favourite moments, I was literally, we were, the, the clue, something about prize winning 
um, pigs or so. The actual answer was the prize-winning sausages at the market in Berry. Now we got this completely lost in translation with the clue, and somebody sent us to this farm on the outskirts of Berry because they had a prize-winning pig. And I'm running across this field, shouting at this farmer, going, "Hi, it's Emma from Radio Manchester. Have you got a prize-winning pig?" And he's like, "What have I have? Why?" He was like, Are you "Expecting us? No." Just me having a confused conversation with a, a pig farmer in the middle of nowhere and we're nowhere near where we're supposed to be. But those are some of the funniest moments ever in broadcasting. And they made us do some mad things on that show. So on the third one, we'd get to, and then we also used to have to do a challenge. And it was kind of like a, a competition between us and the producer, Toby. So he'd be happy if we didn't win. And then we'd be happy if we got to the third location before 1pm. And if we didn't get there, like the show would literally end and I'd be like, I'm on the M60. I'm near Sharston Industrial Estate. I can't get there in time. And then the show would end like that quite undramatically sometimes and just be really depressed. But if it, if it worked properly, then we'd get to the location we're supposed to be getting. And then I'd have to complete a challenge before one o'clock as well. So I'd go and I'd interview the people about what they're doing. And then I'd have to complete a challenge. And I was reminded of um, one of them last week when I went to Withenshaw Park, which I love. And they were having their open days. They've got a farm there. Mm. Brilliant. Do yeah. go along. If you've got families, it's marvellous. Um, but they have prize winning bulls, oh. don't you know? Um, so for my challenge, I had to wash and blow dry the bull. <laughs> In Withenshaw Park. I mean, the, some of the stuff they had me doing was absolutely crazy. I, I, I did a zip wire from the top of um, the Imperial War Museum across the Keys oh, to wow. the other side of, sort yeah. like, in the middle of a, in the middle of a live radio program. Wow. Uh, I did all sorts of mad stuff. By the end of it, Lisa, I had no shame whatsoever. I was going to say, I just need us to go back to the bull. How did the bull blow dry go? <laughs> Well, it was fine, actually. And that's how they do it, because they, like, put them in shows and stuff. So who knew this? They, have, like, they put, like, sort of moose. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's like, Vida Sassoon, or maybe it's a special bull moose they use. I don't know. And so, so, yeah, it was a mad show. We miss it. We miss it a lot. It was a lot of fun. And the listeners used to absolutely love it, because it got us all round Greater mm, Manchester, exactly. and it got us places that you'd never normally go, and really tiny little sort of village fates where I'd be engaging in welly throwing and you know sort of tiny little events that like big radio stations would never normally cover but I'd get there and get stuck in yeah it, it was a lot of fun basically. I feel like that needs to be reinstated and the thing with the manhunt which interests me is the fact that I think lots of people don't understand how what diversity in terms of like beautiful countryside we've got within GM you know and it's how different some of those villages that people just don't know about and, and you know it's not just about the city centre there's so much yeah. stuff out there isn't there in the, in the boroughs yeah and the thing about Manhunter was we were always going to particularly in the summer we were always going to events and they were often in parks mm. and I discovered how many parks there are yeah you know went to some beautiful parks in Presswich went to Clifton Park in Salford a few times um all these different parks, which, you know, if you live in one part of Manchester, you don't necessarily, you know, everyone's heard of Heaton Park, but mm. there are hundreds of beautiful parks right across our borough. There really are. Yeah. I mean, my partner um, has been living in Rochdale and just got to know Healy Dell and all the parks around there and all the reservoirs. You know, you might as well be in the Lake District. Some yeah. of those reservoirs up north of Rochdale and Oldham are absolutely stunning. Watergrove, Greenborough. I mean, it's just beautiful. It really mm. is. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going. I'm doing Kilimanjaro in October, so 
I've got to start doing a lot of walking, and so I'm going to do the reservoir. Yeah, that's what we're doing this weekend—a big long walk. Oh um, my god! So good luck with that. So it cools down a bit after today. So just going back to Gadio, then. I mean, that was notoriously kind of innuendo packed, wasn't it? So they had some funny moments <laughs> on there. <laughs> so tell me about something that stands out from you from one of those uh, interviews, maybe. Oh my <laughs> life. Pick an innuendo moments. Oh, my God. I don't, well, I mean, we used to do this thing. Our producer, Ellen, used to do this fantastic mashup of Bake Off. Now, Bake Off back in the day was even ruder than it is now when it was um, Mary Berry and it, when it was Sue and Mel. They were absolutely filthy. But we used to make it even more filthy by literally just cutting up the bits where they'd say... Oh, that's got a bit of a soggy bottom. Oh, that's gone stiff or, or whatever it was. And merging it together. And then we actually got to interview Paul Hollywood at one point and we played it back to him and he was in absolute hysterics. He couldn't believe what we'd done with it. But, it, but he told us that Mary Berry was even more filthy in real life. So. We weren't surprised, to be honest, Lisa. We weren't surprised. But yeah, we got to have a lot of fun on Gadio. No, we really did. We had some... Well, we had laugh out loud moments every single day. But what I'm probably most proud about about Gadio is that, you know, I really believe that we fulfilled something that no other radio station could have fulfilled. And we really spoke to the LGBTQ plus community, not just in Manchester, but nationally. Well, by the time by the time I've been there a few years, we went we went national and we had more listeners in London than Manchester. And we have listeners worldwide, actually. And the impact that that had has been phenomenal i mean i can't tell you it broke my heart sometimes we would get letters from people in places like iran where it's illegal to be gay mm. and their only access to other lgbt people was logging online and they found gaydio and they were listening to us talk twaddle in the morning or, or or talk serious stuff as well and you know we'd have to reflect everything that was going on in our community so i was responsible for doing the news so we'd carry all the national news but we'd always report lgbt news as well and then we were there to reflect on, you know, the good moments. And, and then there were lots because we were celebrating equal marriage came in in this country when we were on air doing the breakfast show and in Ireland and in New Zealand and country after country after country. But then we were there to reflect on the awful moments as well, like the Pulse shooting, which was just had the sixth anniversary, actually, which was the big, at the time the biggest shooting in America and 49 people were murdered in a gay club in Florida. We woke up with a whole plan for the breakfast show and we we're hoping to do all this stuff and celebrate this, that and the other. And then we have to rip up the whole plan and start again and reflect the most horrific thing ever. And, and people have questions, people are upset, people want to engage with you. And that was probably one of the toughest shows that, that you, you know, that we've, we've had to do. But, you know, that's why I'm glad Gadia was there and we, I was able to be part of it, really. I suppose that leads on to, to podcast because you continue to create that safe space for people who need to have those conversations in your in coming out stories. And what strikes me is that legacy work that you're doing through those podcasts is taking that, creating that community with them. So first of all, let's talk about coming out stories and how has being the host of that podcast affected the way you think about your own coming out? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So... Funnily enough, coming out stories wasn't my idea and I can't take the credit because it is my legacy and I think it is probably the thing I'm the most proud of mm. in my 51 years, to be honest. Um, it was the idea of Sam Walker, a brilliant broadcaster, used to be on Radio Manchester with us on Five Live and 
after a particularly difficult breakup, I ended up living with her and her family. It was supposed to be for a month. I think it was about a year, but anyway. <laughs> and during that time, she said, wouldn't it be great to collect coming out stories and, you know, reflect your community? And I actually turned around and went, well, I don't know, Sam. No one's interested in my coming out story. Anyone else's, are they? You know, it's 2018. Does it matter if we come out as gay? And boy, was I wrong. It is still pretty difficult to come out as gay. Uh, particularly difficult to come out as trans or non-binary in 2022. So I'm so glad we started the project. And, you know, since 2018, we've collected probably around 100 now different coming out stories from people across the community, predominantly Manchester, but also across the world. Um, the pandemic made that possible. So suddenly I was not interviewing people in Longsight or Withenshore. I was interviewing people in Florida and Mumbai. So uh, that changed it a bit. But Sam always said, look, the first one has to be you and has to be your story. So I have told that. You can go back and listen to it. And, yeah, but what's interesting over the years is seeing how everybody's story is individual. And I have spoken to a lot of people my age. There's a lot of people my age who will reflect on the 80s and talk about the AIDS crisis and gay men in particular who have a lot of internalised homophobia because they lived through that awful era where gay men in particular were being portrayed as paedophiles and purveyors of disease and not being supported through an awful pandemic that was killing all of their friends and colleagues. You know, people that went through that and have really suffered awful experiences back in the day to then people coming out a lot more recently and still going through dramas and traumas. I spoke to a young Asian man from Levenshume who was thrown out of the family home for being gay and literally was walking the streets looking for someone to take them in. You know, people have been through horrific experiences. So what's been interesting over the years, just talking to all these different people, and I've talked to people who came out in the 1950s and 60s up to people that came out last week, is the common thing that binds us all together, really, and that's even if you're from a very sort of tolerant family with really loving parents who clearly have gay friends, whatever, there is still something in society that makes us go, this is going to be a difficult conversation, this could go the wrong way, this could be awful, I could lose everything. And it is still a difficult conversation for people to have with their loved ones and it's still a difficult, challenging thing for people to go through. And the other thing that is the common thread that I've learned through doing coming out stories is the simple message that it does get better. And, you know, I've spoken to people whose parents have reacted terribly when they've come out to them. But then fast forward a few months or a few years and everything is absolutely fine and my story reflects that as well my parents were okay but they didn't exactly throw a party you know they're very much like oh right okay but let's not tell the neighbors whereas now they're happy talking about it to everybody everybody you know sometimes it takes years for that to sort of filter through and for people to give you full understanding that every story that I've had people have had a journey of acceptance either from their family or sometimes what they've gone on to do has gone on to find their own family. And I think LGBT people are very good at doing that. They're very good at finding their own queer mm. family. And sometimes, you know, I've spoken to people who have been completely ostracised by their entire family. Can you believe it? Mm. it? It just beggars belief. But sometimes that does happen. It's very few and far between. But people always go on to find their tribe and find their friends and find their lovers and find the people that they spend the rest of their lives together. And they're happy. They're, they're getting on with it. You know, it's... It might take therapy, it might mean they've gone through lots of mental health problems, but it does get better. And that's one of the key messages that I've sort of discovered through all, all, all the many, many interviews that I've done. Mm. And that's so important. It's such an important support, isn't it, for people? And I also think there's 
so much pressure on from families, isn't there? And to be a certain way, I mean, you know, to, to grow up in a certain way and, and represent the family in a certain way. And it's all a construct that just isn't necessary, really. Um, exactly. You know, and as a parent myself now, I just yes. I can't imagine wanting anything for my daughter no. other than to, to be happy and healthy. It's exactly. like, why would you care who they love or, you know, yeah. what gender they identify as? Why, why is that important? Why is it so important to people? Why are we still hanging on to these sociological mm. constructs that are so damaging for so many people? Mm. And you just wouldn't believe that that is a thing now. I really understand that, you know, from, say, as you say, the 50s and the 60s, but now it's still, it's still we're doing some work with Pride around, you know, obviously anti-hate campaign and raising awareness and that, some of the stories that have been shared with us are just heartbreaking. But it's good to hear that you've got experience of the fact that that, you know, that can improve. And as you say, find your own family, find your own tribe. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be your specific, you know, your blood family, does it? And a lot of LGBT people do do that. And yeah. um, what's interesting, talking to people in Manchester, is Manchester's got a huge thing to answer for, in a sense, actually. And Russell T Davies and Queer as Folk led so many queer people, you know, from the 90s onwards to flock to Manchester and still to this day, you know, people come to our city because it is tolerant, because they are fleeing a home life somewhere else and they think that, you know, Manchester's got a gay village. They might be from a small village that has no gay bars or they think that there's no other gay people. Clearly there are. But people flock to Manchester because there is this big gay village, there is a community, there is the Lesbian and Gay Foundation, there is the Albert Kennedy Trust... There are so many di different support groups here that gay people and trans people do flock yeah. here. And, you know, that's, yeah. there's, that there's a lot to be said for that, actually. Yeah, and I think Manchester needs to, to acknowledge that and realise, you know, we are, we are a very diverse city and, and the better for it, really. Mm, absolutely. But it's amazing work that you're doing um, and that's fantastic. And I've just got to very quickly ask you about, is my rabbit a lesbian? I've not listened to this ah. podcast, but I've got to listen to it. This is a laugh out loud, total escapism, don't talk about particularly very serious subjects. It, it is me and my radio husband, Chris Holliday, and our old producer, Ellen, from Gadio, finding the excuse to finally get back around microphones together for the first time in over three years. And it's very simple. So Chris moved away to New York. He picks a story from America, and then I pick a story from the UK, and each of those stories will pose a question. And then we debate it. Um, so we might discuss really serious things like, um, are you a camper or are you not a camper? Or should I do hot yoga in my bathroom? But the is my rabbit a lesbian was actually a real question. It's based on a ridiculous story that really did happen. On um, This morning, somebody actually rang the resident vet to ask if my rabbit is a lesbian. <laughs> and the poor vet had to keep a straight face. So it's, the stories usually revolve around crazy things like that, crazy 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 things that people do and it ends up in the news oh. yeah. <laughs> oh God, honestly that's going on the list i can't wait <laughs> it's, it's, it's yeah it's it. just it's just absolute nonsense but we basically we chris holiday is one of the only people i've ever met in my life that every time i have a conversation i will end up crying laughing so it just, he just has to do a comedy podcast it's just brilliant that question are you a camper you're not a camper it was opening when I was like bringing the kids up and I was separate, been separated from the kid's dad and he was always taking them in camping and I would take them to like a biostar hotel because I wasn't camping. So they had two completely different lives. And um, my son said when he was about eight, somebody asked him when I was there, do you go camping with your mum? And he said, 
the only tent my mum goes in is to have a spray tan. (laughs) (laughs) And he wasn't wrong. (laughs) Don't go changing. Stay who you are. You can't be changing even for your children. <laughs> no, I'm not a camper, so that's a good no, um, I'm not a camper. And so just, I mean, obviously you've had a, a mega year this year. You've, I mean, you've had um, a baby and you've been through a lot of trauma around your baby's birth, but obviously, you know, she's sleeping now, so that's good. So just tell me how that's been for you the, the past, you know, few months and, and how things are now. Yeah, it's been a whirlwind, to say the least. So, baby Neve was born on the 15th of March in Oldham Royal and spent the first two days in an incubator and then was whisked away to Alderhay Hospital in Liverpool because we knew from the 20-week scan that she had a congenital heart defect. It's called a coartation of the aorta, if you're interested. It basically means that um, one of the tubes coming out of her heart wasn't wide enough, so we knew she probably would have to have heart surgery and, and that indeed was the case, so... The poor little thing spent the first five weeks of her life in Alderhay Hospital preparing for and then having open heart surgery twice. Mm. So they did the first surgery, which was horrific, giving her child away and literally signing a form saying there's 10% chance she won't come back or if she does, she'll have brain damage. But she came back fine. And then a day later they said, oh no, there's something else wrong with the other side of her heart. So she went through open heart surgery twice, was in intensive care one nurse looking after her, sometimes two at all times, for 11 days. And they fixed her, basically. I mean, I cannot thank the staff and the doctors and the nurses and the whole team at Alderhay enough. They are incredible. And the whole of the NHS has been incredible. I know lots of people have bad experiences, but when there's a baby with their life on the line, they step up to the mark, let me tell you. It's been an incredible experience. And the last two months, we've actually been at home you know, getting used to life as a family, really, and which is weird after you spent five weeks with nurses doing every single thing for you. I mean, they would have done the nappies if we'd, you know, not got in the way and gone, we can do that bit, you know, we can do some things. But, you know, they were literally doing everything for us to suddenly, like, bringing her home going, oh, what do we do now? But, yeah, she is thriving. She's still got a scar on her chest. She's got a thyroid problem. She's got Down syndrome. So, you know, there's lots of there's lots of other challenges that we will face as a family, but um, she's completely transformed our lives in a dramatic but wonderful and joyful way. She's an, I mean, she's kept us up half the night, so she's in the naughty, on the naughty <laughs> step this morning, but um, definitely on the naughty step this morning. Um, but she's so cute. They make babies cute on purpose, don't they? So you yes. don't get annoyed with them. Absolutely. She's so beautiful. Oh. I could just like stare at her all day. She's so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. she is. I feel very, very gorgeous. lucky. I'm so pleased. I'm yeah. so pleased for you. And, you know, we talk about values at Royal Transfield and, you know, very, um, it's important to me that I kind of want to share my values, my kids, that how they live their lives is important. Is how they live their lives is up to them. But what, for you, would you say you've learned over your life that you want to pass on to Neve in terms of, you know, your values and how you show up? Ooh, I like that. Mm. Yes, yeah, good way of putting the question. So it's funny, I was talking to Siobhan, my partner, yesterday. I was saying, they're going to ask me about my values. What are my values? What are your values? And she said, I think the main one is just don't be a dick. And I was like, yeah, that's quite a good one, isn't it? Because that's quite all-encompassing, isn't it, really? And then when I've looked at your company values, I've... Um, yes. <laughs> have you written no dickheads as one of your company values? Is yeah. that what it actually says? Because you starred it out in a very... Um, it's um, in, that, in the book... It starred out, but when the new one, it's going in full because we had a debate over it. And oh, I'm yeah. like, no, and after COVID, it's just going to be no dickheads. And we say it, so, yeah, it's important. Exactly. 
it's no dickheads, basically. Yeah. I mean, which encompasses everything, doesn't it, really? So, you know, without sounding like the Bible, it's about treating people as you wish to be treated. It's about not judging people. It's about respecting people and respecting other people's choices. You know, if people want to be identified as a certain pronoun, respect that. If people want to wear a dress and they were born with men, male genitalia, respect that. Respect people for who they are. If people want to love someone of the same gender, respect that and listen to them. You know, do not judge people. And again, it links to another of your company values, which I saw, which is about, you know, walk a mile in another person's shoes. You don't know what other people have gone through. So do not look down on people and think that you're better than them. That has been something that I've stood by all my life. I've tried to, I've made it my life's mission to meet as many different people from as many different walks of life, really. Yeah. Um, which is why I enjoyed working at the prison so much and meeting people who've had terrible, terrible, they've been dealt awful hands in life. Mm. And it makes you realise how bloody lucky you really are. Yeah. So do not judge people because they're in prison and you're not. You have no idea what some of these people have been through. So that, that I think, is the main thing that I would want to pass down to Neve. Yeah. Um, don't be a dickhead and don't judge people. Accept people for who they are. So important. See, see the good in people. Definitely. Yeah. They're my two favourite values, and then plant trees you'll never see, because I believe that it's our duty as humans to put more in than we take out, and so that's what I try and tell my kids. But, yeah, those, I mean, and it, I, we discuss those values at home, because ultimately they are the company ones, but they are mine, so... Thank you for sharing oh, them. Yeah. Have you got some trees in the National Forest? I've got some trees and uh, planted yeah. some trees in the National Forest. We have, and we, uh, we celebrate our 25 years um, this year, and we're, we're planting 25 for, for our anniversary. So, oh. yeah, so I'm looking forward to doing that. Oh, that's brilliant. That. Yeah. Well, when my sister passed away from breast cancer, we asked everyone to plant a tree in her memory. Oh, no. And, you know, a lot of people haven't got gardens. I haven't. I live in a third-floor flat. So that's what I did. I bought trees in various forests and a few people did that as well. So, that's you know, it's nice to know that yeah. I might never, ever visit this tree. I may never see it. And, and, and they, don't, they don't actually tell you what specific tree it is, do they? You just give money towards it and, you know, you'll never see the tree. Or, but, you know, you, you just know that it's there and it's hopefully helping the planet in some way. Definitely. That's really beautiful. So I'm going to do a quick fire now. Man, just a quick fire. So. Oh, yeah. Okay. Which Greater Mancunian have you most enjoyed interviewing or who would you most like to interview, yeah. living or past? Oh, good question. Okay. Um, the one I've most enjoyed interviewing springs into mind straight away is Russell T. Davis because I think I mentioned him earlier. Mm. He's so instrumental to our community for all the amazing TV work he's done. And I don't just mean Queer as Fire because I was known for that, but also, of course, It's a Sin, which uh, was out last year. We're so important at highlighting the awful experience that uh, a whole community went through in the 1980s with HIV and AIDS. Um, Doctor Who, of course, but he's just... You know, when he did all um, cucumber and banana and tofu, that's when I did interview him, actually. He has done so much. He's such an intelligent guy. He's, you know, brought LGBT stories to the mainstream. You know, he's queered up Doctor Who. You know, what is not to love? Because so many LGBT people are really into sci-fi and really into Doctor Who. So to queer that up has made a lot of people very, very happy. Um, and he's just the most lovely guy. I mean, he came to Gadio, actually, and I think... 
you know, when you're doing interviews for radio, it's got to be fairly short and snappy. Well, thank God we pre-recorded it. I think he went on for about an hour, and then he wouldn't, and then he wouldn't leave. He was like just chatting to everyone in the station and asking all about Gadio. And he was just the loveliest, loveliest man ever. And here's another story about Russell. So we also did an auction at Gadio for the Terence Higgins Trust, which um, helps people living with HIV and has done for a long time. And we were raising money by doing a, like a celebrity auction so you could buy like prizes that money couldn't buy. And one of them was lunch with Russell T Davies. And somebody did the highest bid and they went for lunch. And Russell contacted the station and went, so I'm thinking of um, taking them to this particular place. And they were like, well, no, we've sorted it. Like he thought he was going to have to pay for the lunch himself. And he was quite prepared to do <laughs> oh. that, to pay for a random gay man to go and have lunch with him. And then gave him loads of Do- Doctor Who merch. Wow. So went above and beyond so So, yeah i just think he's a i just think he's a bit of a legend really which is why when he when i sent him a copy of my book we turned coming out stories into a book basically it's called coming out stories you can find it at all good bookstores and i it was during the first lockdown and i sent it to loads of people to review and eventually i got an email back from him and i was i was so excited lisa i cried So I thought, out of everybody that I want to review this book, he's the one. And he said, Emma, I'm so sorry. I've had so many manuscripts and things sent to me because everyone's just been writing during lockdown because there's nothing else that people can do. I've been swamped, but I wish I'd got to your book first. And he sent the most incredible review. We've got his quote on the cover, which is, this book is vital. And then he also said, this book should be in every school and every home in the country. And I would love that if that was true. But yeah. Russell T Davies is a champion of LGBT rights and he's just a genius and a and a Manchester superstar yeah. really. So yeah, Russell. Wow. We could try and get him on. We built the city. That would be amazing. Oh, you should. Yeah. If yeah. we could help with that, that'd be brilliant. Um, describe Manchester in three words. Vibrant, multicultural, queer. Love it. What do you order at the chippy? <laughs> it's a good one. What do you order? What do you order at the chippy? I love this question. Well, I'm just very boring. I'm very traditional. I will not be having any battered sausage. Thank you very much. I will go for fish, chips and mushy peas every time. No gravy. Because if you're going to the chippy, you've got it. Absolutely not. No, very occasionally, may go chips and gravy. And in fact, last time we went, there's a new chippy that's just opened in Shawclough, north of Rochdale. It's very nice, actually. Mm. And we went in and we noticed they had curry sauce and Irish curry sauce. I mean. Wow. Well, and as my girlfriend's Irish, we had to go for the Irish one. Oh. I was like, this is very odd. Why is a chippy in Shawclough doing yeah. Irish curry sauce? And it is different. I don't know why, but it is different. And I have to be controversial and say it's probably nicer than English curry sauce. Really? I wanted so, to try that. That sounds... Check that it sounds out. Like yeah, trip. Irish curry sauce. Definitely. It's a different... <laughs> <laughs> what do you miss most about Manchester when you're not here? Well, it's not the weather, because let's face it, it's shit. Mm-hmm. The bustle, the hustle and the bustle. Yeah. I, I mean, I rarely go into the city centre these days, but when I do, I'm just like, oh, mm-hmm. people. That's what I miss during lockdown as well. Just people rushing about and looking busy and looking important and looking like they're going somewhere exciting. And just that's why I said my first word is vibrant. I just mm-hmm. f- think it's a really vibrant city full of like engaging people doing cool stuff. So, yeah, I'd say I miss, I miss the hustle and the bustle. Yeah. You've nailed that. That's exactly how Manchester feels to me. And you're a massive fancy dress fan. We talked about that before. So it's a fancy dress party celebrating famous Manx. Who would you go as? Oh, my life! (laughs) See, it wasn't... Automatically, I was going to go Alan Turing, but really, do we know what he wore? 
probably quite boring 1950s suits. <laughs> yes, I was say a bit grey. You've got to think a bit about glamour, haven't you, if you're attending a party, much though I do respect him. So instead, I think I'm going to go high camp and wear the sort of clothes that I would never normally wear as a slightly butch lesbian. And I think I'd go as Bet Lynch. <laughs> I mean, just the wig. I mean, you'd get a great selection of earrings, wouldn't you? Oh, my God. I need to see that. Make sure you do go and and do that one day. (laughs) So, okay. lastly then, a few years ago, you had a party to celebrate the anniversary of you coming out and a friend read from your diary and the diary that you wrote in at the time to say that you thought you were gay. So I just wondered what you think that that young girl from your diary thinks of the woman that you've become today and all you've accomplished. Oh my God, I nearly brought a tear to my eye, Lisa. I don't, I think she'd be just flabbergasted, really. And I think, you know, every time I have a big life event, I just think, God, so much has changed. Mm. So much has happened. You know, I was thinking this morning about, oh, getting upset now. (laughs) You know, since since Abigail, since Abigail passed away, how much has even happened in those, like, nearly two years? Like, how my life has just gone down all these avenues that I never thought it would go down, you know? You know, since she's passed, I've had a book published. I've got a show on Virgin Radio Pride. I made a documentary for BBC Radio Wales. I'm making a documentary for BBC Sounds about Terence Higgins. And I've had a fucking baby. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, my life is, even in the last two years, my life is unrecognisable from what it was, you know? And I've just bought a house in Whitefield. I'm a, you know, I'm going to be living the suburban Whitefield dream. I think teenage me would never believe it that I've gone on to do what I've done. And again, it shows, like the podcast shows, that it does get better from that insecure teenager who thought that she was the only lesbian in the world and couldn't possibly come out of school and couldn't possibly tell anyone about her experiences and the fact that she was madly in love with a woman to someone that bangs on about it 24-7 and is very happy in a stable relationship with a wonderful woman and has a child with them and, you know, has gone on really to make a career out of talking about being gay is quite extraordinary so yeah I, I don't i don't think they'd believe it lisa i really don't just incredible um and i feel emotional about what you're saying there I just think it's amazing and he's sorry sister, I didn't... You know? my grandma said my eyes are too near my bladder so but you know what you just said there. um <laughs> that you know your sister well, don't worry because like... I, I i cry most <laughs> i cry most days about my sister so it's oh. okay but she'd be so proud of you. And I just think, you know, thank you so much for sharing everything. Your, your story is incredible. We've only just, you know, told a part of it. And I just can't believe, you know, what a wonderful role model you, your Neve's going to have for the rest of her life. So thank you. Oh. <laughs> Thanks oh. for your time. Tell that to my girlfriend when I'm being annoying. And she... <laughs> Oh, absolutely. No, it's been brilliant to talk to you. Thanks so much, Anna. And thank you, Lisa. Yeah, what a great podcast. Emma Goswell built this city by shining a light on the coming out stories of Greater Mancunians, by crying after getting an email from Russell T Davis, and by blow-drying the bull in Withenshaw Park. On the next episode of We Built This City, you'll hear from the leader of Manchester City Council, Bev Craig. That episode will be available on the 14th of July. If you want to find out more about how Roland Transfield can help you drive your values and create relationships that build your business success, then head over to rdpr.co.uk or you can find us on Instagram at Roland Transfield or Twitter at RDPR Tweets. And we're also on TikTok at Roland Transfield. Or feel free to give us a call at the office on the same number we've had for 25 years on 0161 
236-1122. And in the meantime, don't forget to rate, review and follow We Built This City. Thank you. Thank you.